It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Imagine a global classroom where anyone can learn anything, anywhere, all built by one man. He got his start as a hedge fund analyst, tutoring his cousin on the side. He posted a few tutorials on YouTube that became so popular, he made it his life's work. The Khan Academy now serves 26 million students with over 1 million teachers, teaching everything from chemistry to computer programming, from kindergarten to calculus. And the best part is, it's all free. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, Khan Academy founder and education reinventor, Sal Khan. Sal, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You grew up in Louisiana. Yes. You weren't wealthy, you weren't privileged, you had you were on free school lunches. Yeah, my mom raised me and my sister, you know, I, I never met my dad, really. And uh, but yeah, she raised us kind of as a single mother, uh, you know, uh, my entire childhood. Now, she had a bunch of odd jobs from you know, uh, managing a, a local convenience store to, you know, at one point she was the woman who collected the change from the vending machine. And you went to public high school, right? We had folks uh, that were uh, headed to four-year colleges. There were some kids who had just been kind of out of juvie and whatever else, but it was, it, but, you know, but there were a lot of, there was, there was a group of kids that, you know, were, were headed to, 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 to college, too. What did you want to be when you grew up? When I was in high school, I got enamored with kind of the, the golden age of theoretical physics. And this is a science that's trying to understand the nature of reality. What's cooler than that? And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to be a physicist. You also learned how to code, right? Uh, we didn't have a computer at home, but uh, eventually I'd gotten my hands on a, one of these programmable calculators. And so I learned you could like, you know, just even on a calculator, you could write games and all of this. So I became obsessed with that. I said, hey, well, with code, you can create reality. And so that kind of became captivating for me once I got to college. You went on to MIT. Yep. So I remember when I was in high school and my guidance counselor said, okay, so where are you thinking about applying to? And it's like, MIT. And he's like, no one has ever gone to MIT from our high school. But luckily, things worked out. So after all that, how did you end up at a hedge fund? I went to a tech startup, actually not too far from where we are right here. I was there for two years. And, you know, like everyone in 1999, 2000, I was, you know, plotting my retirement at age 25. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the, the NASDAQ collapses. And I remember thinking, okay, um, maybe I should, you know, rethink my future a little bit. After probably getting dinged about 40 interviews, I actually got a, got a you know, and I found a, a place with a, a guy who was a really incredible mentor and, 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 and boss. While you were at the hedge fund, you started tutoring your cousin on the side. How did that work? You know, it was uh, 2004. I had just gotten married, and it just came out of conversation that my cousin Navia was having trouble in math. I started to teach her you know, some algebra. I got her actually a little ahead of her class, and then I became what I call a, a tiger cousin. And I, <laughs> I called her her school, 
And I said, you know, I really think Nadia Rahman should retake that placement exam from last year. Two or three years later, she was taking calculus at the University of New Orleans. That was just the first example. I was like, wow, you know, there was something here. Gee, how many more kids there might be who think they're not good at math, but just need a little bit of an intervention and they could just run. How did you end up posting the tutorials then on YouTube? The one thing that happened is word got around the family that free tutoring was going on. <laughs> so I started working with Every day after work, I was working with 10 or 15 cousins, family, friends, all over the country. I started writing practice software for them, and then tools for me as their coach or their teacher or their tutor to keep track of what they were doing. And one of my friends said, well, this is all cool, Sal. Why don't you make some of them as, as YouTube videos and, uplo and upload them? And I immediately said, it's a, it's a horrible idea. YouTube's for cats playing piano, <laughs> not serious math. But yeah, I went home that weekend, got over the idea that it wasn't my idea, and you know, I made those videos public. I thought it was only going to be for my cousins, uh, but it wasn't long before it was clear that people who were not my cousins were watching. So tell me about the moment where you said, there's a bigger problem here I can solve. Maybe this can be my full-time job. Maybe this can be my mission. Yeah, well, you know, in those early days when I asked my cousins for feedback and they, they famously said that they liked me better on YouTube than in person. But they liked also having no judgment if they had to review something from fourth grade and if they were in ninth grade or, uh, you know, if in the middle of the night they were stuck on something, they didn't have to call me or anything. It was just on demand. Then when I started getting letters from people on YouTube, some of the initial ones were, you know, just simple thank yous. But then the comments, you know, this is the reason why I was able to pass algebra. This is the reason why I was able to, um, after leaving the military, able to go back to college and major in engineering. Uh, this is the reason why my children are able to, you know, who have a learning disability are able to engage with their math class. And it was 2008, I set it up as a not-for-profit. By 2009, it was just, you know, this was all I was thinking about. And so, you know, my wife and I sat down and we figured, like, let's give it a shot. It feels like this could be a real organization. And so uh, I quit my job and, and, see, and, and I tried to see if we could do it for real. Was it scary? Yes. <laughs> you know, our, 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 our first son had just been born. We ended up digging into our savings to the tune of about $5,000 a month. But you almost have to have a, a somewhat delusionally optimistic mindset. It was the most stressful time of my life. You kind of question your, your self-worth, like, oh, so what do you do for a living? I make YouTube videos, you know? You're like, not the cats playing piano. Yeah, exactly. So about nine or 10 months into it, all of a sudden, uh, we got our first major donation. It was from someone, Ann Doer. Um, I immediately emailed her. It was a $10,000 donation. I said, thank you so much. This is the most generous donation that Khan Academy has ever received. If we were a physical school, you would now have a building named after you. <laughs> and, and she responded back. She said, well, I love what you're doing. I'd love to learn more. And you know, we met, and we talked more. And she said, well, you know, you, you've made a lot of progress, but you know, how, how are you supporting yourself? And in as proud of a way as possible, I said, I'm not. She said, you really need to be supporting yourself. I've just wired you $100,000. So that was a good day. Wow. That's what kind of allowed me to say, wow, maybe I can really do this. And it's still all free. It's all free. I mean, that is, you know, a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. So that is core uh, to, to who we are. We've obviously had support from Gates Foundation, from Google, from, from, from others, uh, to turn into a real organization. It's not, you know, I'll be very clear, it's not just me anymore. We're uh, 80 full-time employees. We have volunteers. It's really a much larger effort than me. So John and Andor, Bill Gates, Reed Hastings, Google, I know Eric Schmidt is on the board. How do you get these kinds of people to support you? I mean, a lot of the folks that you just mentioned actually ended up, they just found themselves using Khan Academy or they used it with their children. And so they were able to directly feel the benefit of it. I'm curious now, you know, because your model is there's no employee equity, right? Everyone gets the same stock package that I have. 
There's no, there's not going to be an IPO, <laughs> right? There's not going to be an IPO, no. So I wonder if at this point, like, do you worry about making ends meet? We are a strange beast on a lot of levels, where we are in some ways this high growth, scalable tech thing that's reaching millions or hundreds of millions. But at the same time, we're a not-for-profit. We, we're, we're competing for the top people with Google and Facebook and you know, Dropbox and all of these, these kind of you know, Uber, these hot uh, Silicon Valley companies, but we're not able to give the, the, the stock packages. We find if you give them a good salary, you give them a good mission, you give them intellectually challenging work, and then you give them other great people to work around, it just naturally feeds on itself. So I, I feel good about the model, even though it is a bit of a strange model. And what about your own financial position? I mean, I know you have three kids now. I pinch myself every morning. I feel like I came to terms with, this is what I really love doing in life. We can buy a Honda Accord every eight years. <laughs> you know, so that's all I need, as long as I can pursue my passion. Uh, you know, we get to dream about what could it be in the future? And are we creating the, the, the Harvard or the Oxford for this next stage of civilization that could reach not 1,000 students a year, 2,000 students a year, but that could reach a billion students a year? And so I, I couldn't imagine being in a, in a luckier position. You are hanging out with tech billionaires, and you're on the same lists as Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, the same most influential people list. So I wonder, how do you feel you fit in as an entrepreneur, yet you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I joke I was, I was the poorest person on the cover of Forbes. <laughs> <laughs> what is neat about Silicon Valley is as much wealth as there is here, it isn't about the wealth. What, what people in Silicon Valley care about is what are you doing to innovate? What is the thing that you're doing that, that's going to change the world? That's what makes Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. What is the myth of Salcon and what is the reality? The day-to-day -day life, I'm still changing diapers and you know, cleaning, cleaning up burp off the floor. <laughs> and, and, and I think the other, you know, uh, the, the other myth is, uh, the, you know, sometimes it looks like these things just happen overnight. And I, I don't think I'm speaking just for myself. I think I'd be speaking for a lot of folks at Silicon Valley who've started things, is that you know you hear about their success, but they have a string of failures that right. kind of get swept, swept under the rug. I probably got dinged by 30-something foundations when I was trying to get Khan Academy funded. It's never as kind of as as clean right. as, as it looks from the outside. You still create most of the videos, don't you? I, I still create a large number of videos. It kind of, it's what kind of, it's one of the things that, that keeps me happy. So how many videos have you made personally? I think around 4,000 videos. Most of what we've been investing in is an extension of some of that, that, that software that I started from with my cousins in 2005, where it's students can go, they can learn at their own pace, it understands what they know and what they don't know. We're partnering with the College Board to be the official uh, test prep for the new SAT. So by some measure, Khan Academy already is the largest school in the world, and one of your investors, Yuri Milner, says you're the world's first superstar teacher. Actually, we view it as a huge responsibility. You can imagine a kid who, in a village in Africa or in a slum in Calcutta who gets access to a low-cost phone or tablet device that in five or 10 years will be everywhere. I like to think, for every Albert Einstein we found, how many of them we didn't find? How many of them got squandered because they didn't learn to read, they didn't get an education, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, imagine if we could increase by an order of magnitude, by a factor of 10, the number of Albert Einsteins in the world, the number of people who can do cancer research, the number of people who could think about alternative energy. This could be a, a force multiplier like, like, we, like we've never seen, so it's very exciting. Do you think videos can replace learning in a classroom? I think if learning in a classroom is about information dissemination, and some of the classrooms that we all grew up in was about that, 
videos can do that. In some ways, videos can, because it's more bite-sized, it's on-demand. But I don't think that means that it, the, the physical classroom goes away. I think it's a huge opportunity to, to allow the physical classroom to move up the value chain. So if students are able to get their information at their own time and pace, if they're able to practice and get feedback at their own time and pace, the physical classroom can now be used for real human interaction. The critics have said the videos can be repetitive, it's like drilling. I'm the last person to force videos on anyone. I'll be the first to say, I think the videos are the least important part of your education experience. The way I view it is, if you need an explanation, it's great to be able to look it up, but the real learning is going to happen when you engage in exercises. And then when you go into a physical classroom, having dialogue, doing projects, uh, 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 having a, uh, uh, getting feedback from your peers. The teacher can, can be the human in, in the child's life and sit next to them and really intervene, get to know them better, figure out not just what the content gaps are, but where are the, what are their emotional needs, what's going on at home. And there's this whole body of research that if you have a growth mindset, that you realize that oh, your brain is trainable, that if you just push yourself uh, and stay out of your comfort zone, you can make yourself smarter, so to speak. Now, you guys actually have a new classroom that you've set up at the Khan Academy where you're testing a lot of different things. Tell me about this. It's always been a, a, a bit of a dream of mine, you know, even frankly before Khan Academy existed. Um, like, wow, wouldn't it be fun to kind of be a little mini Dumbledore and, and, and experiment with a lot of these ideas? We said, well, we should, we should have a, a small lab where we can test some of these ideas, where we can test some of these ideas around what could a classroom be. Who are these kids? How many kids? Well, uh, my eldest son is one of the guinea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the kids are, are uh, Khan Academy employees kids. You know, we should live by what we're saying. Otherwise, we'd, we'd be hypocrites. So um, there's that, and then there's just a, you know, we just started, so it's a handful of families who are letting us experiment on their children. The U.S. spends more than any country in the world on education, $1.3 trillion a year, and yet still, we're 25th in math, 17th in science, 14th in reading. What's wrong? If you went 50 years ago and you said, you know, uh, give me a list of the 10 most innovative com companies in the world, maybe 30% would have been American. I think if you were to do that list now, probably 80% would be American. What, what I like to think about is how can we, how can we bring that spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, that spirit of failure not being stigmatized, how do we bring that into the schools? The transcript of the future doesn't need to just be your GPA and your test scores, it can be your portfolio of creative works, it can be your peer feedback. Being an engineer is a creative endeavor, being a designer is a naturally a creative endeavor. Show us what you've done. The U.S. is the only developed country with a high percentage of top performers and bottom performers. I mean, we live in the heart of innovation in the world and the public schools in San Francisco aren't good at all. Um, like, what's the problem? Why is that? We're living in a world right now that if we don't fix something, we're going to have a smaller and smaller percentage of people who are able to participate in this innovation and this wealth creation. We lose some of our most creative potential engineers, mathematicians, based on how we evaluate them in middle school. You can't solve a an exponent when you're 14, you, we don't think that you can be a doctor. We don't think you can be an engineer. Right, you're tracked and, so early on. And, and that, the example of that is looking at a 12-year-old and saying, oh, you can't mix paint. We don't think you can be a painter. Or you're not so flexible when you're 12. We don't think you can be a dancer. Do you think online education is going to replace traditional education or the traditional classroom in the future? 
No, not at all. You know, Uber could disrupt the cab industry. Uh, Airbnb might, in some ways, disrupt the hotel industry. Uh, but I don't think that's going to be the case in education. You know, the, what, what I hope for my own children, yeah, I hope they use Khan Academy and other things to learn at their own time, learn at their own pace. But I hope they go to a classroom where they're able to interact with their teachers, have a conversation, not be told to sit still, but told to move around. And to, not told to be quiet, but told to discuss and create things. So decades from now, are people still going to be paying thousands of dollars for that MIT degree or that Harvard degree. Even today, the return on investment, unless you major in a really lucrative field, is, is a little bit suspect. And if you extrapolate the growth in tuition 10, 20 years, you're looking at, I mean, you have young children as well, you're looking at, you know, will it oh, be... Oh, yeah, we started will, planning for will their it be, uh, you know, Will it be education? like half a million dollars to send them to college? A million? That's just not feasible, and so I think over the next five, 10 years, I think online is going to be part of a catalyst. There's going to be other paths. I don't want colleges to go away, but I, I think there will be some economic discipline that forces them to, to, to hopefully lower tuition as opposed to increase it. So have you had any conversations with the universities about lowering tuition or? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as simple as like, hey, you should lower tuition, but I, I think that there aren't obvious tools at their disposal to drive it just down, drown yes, just yet. I, I do think as there are other narratives, other options that people can do that might be, um, have different economic models, I think that will naturally put pressure. I mean, you have, you know, this has nothing to do with online. You have these uh, folks like General Assembly and these like coder schools where, you know, they, they accept students, they don't take any tuition, uh, they train them for a year in, in something that is, you know, something that society really needs, whether it's designers or whatever else. And then they say, hey, we're just going to take, it's going to be like a recruiting model where we'll, we'll take 20% of your, of your, of your, uh, of your first year salary. And that's a win-win because like, well, gee, if you, if, if I'm Gonna get placed, and if I'm gonna make six figures, I got a I got a good income. I don't have all the answers, but um, there's definitely a lot of interesting catalysts and things happening that I think will change things in the next ten Is years. Is there a government solution here? There's no equivalent for a college degree, uh, but you can imagine the world where either government or some industry consortium, I don't know who, they say, hey, look, if you can come prove to us that you know this set of skills at the same level as a college graduate, we will give you a credential. We will give you a signal to society that you are employable along these dimensions. And at a very high level, this would be something that even a kid who graduates from Harvard or MIT or Stanford would want to do. And that would be one of those catalysts that could put pressure, positive pressure, on higher education costs. When you say that we're going to pay $200,000 for a diploma, most parents and students are thinking, the bulk of that we're paying for a credential. But then the universities, if you think about where most of their resources are going, it's going into something else. It's going into the, you know, the campus, the, the landscaping, the, the, the whatever else. So I think if you decouple the credential from the learning, it allows everyone to compete on the learning side, kind of on an equal footing, and it allows a lot of innovation to happen. And then it allows everyone to kind of tr uh, aspire for credentials that have equal weight. And I'm just daydreaming right now. Right. That could be a pretty powerful way to, to level the playing field. If the brain is a muscle and trying harder can lead to better learning, does that mean that anyone can be Sal Khan, anyone can be Mark Zuckerberg? Or is there something innate about great entrepreneurs that can't be learned? I don't know the absolute statement here. I do think that most people on the planet are capable of mastering calculus 
are capable of programming a computer, are capable of understanding genetics or quantum physics. I genuinely believe that. You know, the example I always give is, if you went 400 years back to Western Europe, you would see that roughly 20% of men and 10% of women were literate, could read. But can anyone start Facebook? Can anyone start the Khan Academy? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I mean, some of these things, you know, Mark Zuckerberg with the slightly, you know, you shift his life a year forward, a year back, he might have not started Facebook. He might have been an engineer at Facebook. You shift Sal Khan's life a year forward, a year back. You put him in a, instead of growing up in New Orleans, if he grew up in Calcutta, it, it, I might have, you don't know what paths would have been. It's been a combination of, they do have a growth mindset. They are people who push themselves to grow and, 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 and learn new things, but they also had a lot of opportunity. Uh, they were in uh, the right places at the right time, um, and and uh, and uh, you know a little little dose of luck uh, never, never hurt. I think a Mark Zuckerberg would have been successful in anything that he did. I don't know if I say everybody could be Mark Zuckerberg, but I think there's a lot of people who could be Mark Zuckerberg who right now think that they can't. What does the classroom look like 10 years from now, 50 years from now? Kids are able to create things that. 10 or 20 years ago, you needed an engineering degree to, to be able to build. The schools are going to be these maker spaces where kids are, and it doesn't have to be technological things. They could be making art. They could be doing poetry. They could be starting businesses. Who knows what it might be? What about you? I hope to be doing this until, you know, the day that I die, which hopefully is not for, you know, another 50 or so years. It might be longer if we hit the singularity like some <laughs> people think. If I imagine a world in 500 years, I hope Khan Academy is still around. What do we need to do to make this a 100-year or a 500-year institution that can be reaching billions of students and empowering billions of, of people? And, and so, yeah, everything I, you know, when I go to bed, I was like, what, what, what needs to be done? What, what is at stake here? And uh, yeah, just keep going. But I hope I'm, you know, also keep making videos too. <laughs> Sal Khan, thank you so much for joining us. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.